0: I don't know the extent to which you can um, change uh, what drives people who are attracted to the world of finance. I think you have to, frankly, uh, constrain the choices they make and make sure the incentives are right. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson.
1: And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Tuesday, April 13th. That was Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, you heard at the top, responding to a question about whether it's possible to change the culture of Wall Street. Adam, let's get right to the Planet Money Indicator, delivered by our very own Planet Money blogger, Jacob Goldstein. Hey, Jacob.
0: Hi, Alex. Today's Planet Money Indicator is $39.7 billion dollars. Uh, that was the size of the u s trade deficit in February. It was up a little bit from the month before a rising trade deficit sounds like a bad thing, but in this case it 's actually a sign that the u s economy is is making a comeback. basically, people are feeling more flush they're buying more stuff more TVs more clothes, more toys but we've been reporting for a long time here at Planet Money that something that people have been dreaming of for years the shrinking of the deficit may possibly be a weird side benefit of the current financial crisis, but now you're saying that an increasing trade deficit could actually be a good thing? Well, I mean, there's certainly the upside of of people buying more things in this country. It's also true that our exports are rising. They've just been rising the past few months more slowly than imports have been rising. So exports in February inched up a little bit from January. They hit their highest point uh, since of the fall of 2008. Uh, It's just that imports are rising more quickly right now. And never has the word fall been more appropriate
1: than the fall of 2008, when this financial crisis began. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Jacob, as always. Thanks, guys. All right. So, Adam, let's get to the subject of today's podcast. And to do that, I'm going to play you a song. Are you ready? Okay. Let's do it. All right. Here it goes.
0: So, you, you recognize that song? I don't. I know nothing about popular music, but it does sound familiar. Like I've heard oh, here it. Oh, here comes it could
1: be again. I I go to the chorus. You hey. So, you've heard this before, right? I've definitely heard it before, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. Okay, it's by that band, OK Go. Uh, And the song is called Here It Goes Again. And you've probably heard it because the video that goes along with the song is very famous. It's the band doing this intricate choreographed dance on treadmills. uh, And it actually won a Grammy.
0: Oh, yeah. No, that I totally remember. That's an awesome, awesome video. And so, yes, that is why I remember the song.
1: Right. You saw it, and so did 50 million other people around the world. It was that popular. So this video came out in 2006. And very recently... The band is back in the news, but in a very different venue. The lead singer of the band, OK Go, Damian Kulesh, recently wrote an op-ed that appeared in the New York Times.
0: So this guy is doing stuff... That I know nothing about, Grammys and videos, although I did see this video. But he's also on the New York Times op-ed page. He's all over the place.
1: He's everywhere. Uh, And I promise I'm going to get to the subject of uh, why we're talking about him today on the podcast in a minute. But first, so I'm going to read you a little bit from that op-ed that he wrote. Okay, here it goes. So the op-ed starts in 2006, he says, We made a video of us dancing on treadmills for our song, Here It Goes Again. We shot it at my sister's house without telling EMI, our record company, and we posted it on the fledgling YouTube without EMI's permission. As the age of viral video dawned, Here It Goes Again was viewed millions, then ten millions of times. It brought big crowds to our concerts on five continents, and by the time we returned to the studio, 700 shows, one Grammy, and nearly three years later, EMI's ledger had a black number in our column. Now, he goes on, we've released a new album and a couple of new videos, but the fans and bloggers who helped spread Here It Goes Again across the internet can no longer do what they did before because our record company has blocked them from embedding our video on their sites. Believe it or not, in the four years since our treadmill dance got such attention, YouTube and EMI have actually made it harder to share our videos. All right. So...
0: That's all very interesting is the subject of today's podcast, really dumb decisions by record labels, like <laughs> no, no. bad business Just decisions. Hold your horses, hold your horses.
1: There's this one paragraph near the end of the op-ed that will get to the point here. Uh, it goes like this. So this is the towards the end. He says, it's decisions like these that have earned record companies a reputation for being greedy and short-sighted, and by and large, they deserve it. But before we cheer for the demise of the big bad machine, it's important to remember that record companies provide the music industry with a vital service. They're risk aggregators, or at least they used to be.
0: All right. Now, finally, <laughs> you're talking about rock stars and dancing and videos and record labels, stuff I don't, nobody cares about that stuff. But then, risk aggregators. Now, that has my attention. That sounds like something interesting.
1: Right. Exactly. I read that op ed and I thought he's been on the internet, he's been in the New York Times, but with that sentence, he crossed into the planet money zone.
0: Exactly. If the words risk aggregators were not in that column, we would have. I hate to say it. We'd be one of the only broadcast outlets that has no interest in talking to <laughs> the lead singer of OK Go. But because of that, we were fascinated. So we reached out to the lead singer, Damien Kulash, and asked him about the recording business. You and uh, David Kestenbaum talked to him, and we'll play some of that interview right now. You started off by asking, what did he mean when he said the record labels were risk aggregators? What does that
2: word mean? About one out of 20 rock bands that, that even makes it to the point of getting on a major label, which is itself incredibly difficult to do, actually winds up being profitable. So the label is stuck there with 19 things that are failing and, and one thing that's successful. That one thing that's successful pays for the other 19. Right. And, and you know, people you know, think that that makes the label stupid, but the fact of the matter is just there are a lot of people who want to be musicians and no one really knows what's going to work. So for there's all these people who now don't have to go back to their job at Starbucks and pay back a $200,000 debt that they incurred when they were trying to do their first tour and their first album and their first you, you know round of radio promotion. So because, labels, the, because the
1: label basically fronted them that money in the hopes that they would be the next big winner, but when they weren't the next big winner, the label didn't make them pay it back. Exactly. And and I couldn't do that myself. I
2: mean, I certainly didn't have 150,000, 200,000 to just like dump on trying to make my band work. And if I I could have gotten a banker to give me that loan. I wouldn't have taken it because I, the chances are I'm going to fail. I mean, most, most rock bands, no matter how good, are not, are not economically successful.
0: What actually are your expenses? I mean,
2: I've seen you guys play. There's like a band. Like,
0: Why is, why is it so much
2: money for a band? Well, the, the expenses now are our, our touring show um, has a crew of five people plus the band. So there's nine of us that have to live somewhere, eat somewhere, and uh, sleep That's somewhere. That's what the van is for. <laughs> uh, you ever tried to fit nine people in a van? Um, we, I mean, we 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 live on a tour bus. We sleep on the tour bus. Tour bus is expensive to rent. The drive is expensive to rent. The gas, un- unfortunately, that we are guzzling, uh, is ex- expensive to consume. And then um, we put on a show that that you know we have a big we have a big video projector and we have. Uh, a you know a big screen that goes with a video projector we have every night we shoot about $200 worth of, of uh, confetti into the air and I mean there's there's lots of little daily expenses for your show but that's just touring I mean there's also the promotional aspect radio promotion is is a, a really sort of disgusting universe of of, um, of kind of like nudge nudge wink wink non-bribes careful if, buddy um, <laughs> if, you, if you well you guys are in public radio and you don't have to worry about this you just have to bribe the government um, oh no we're Get the
1: bribe later. You want this on the air, um,
2: we, but we we, uh, we you know to 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 actually get a song you know truly considered at at, at sort of alternative rock or um, modern rock or or just even normal pop stations across the country takes hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's this whole battalion of people to walk into radio stations and schmooze them and and explain how wonderful the band is and exactly how great this is going to do on your station. And there's no way a, a kid with making records after school is going to get on the radio
1: and and so that, when you're talking about a risk aggregator with the label, the label paying for all those expenses, paying for like you know recording the albums and getting you to Hong Kong and paying for the confetti, that's what that's the risk that they're aggregating. Basically, that expense, they're, they're, the risk is that they're going to pay that expense and they're not going to get paid back if you don't become famous enough and sell enough records for them to make their money. That was the old model, anyway.
2: That's right. And yet, when we got signed in 2001, um, when I was working as a, a radio engineer at NPR Chicago, I. Um, uh, we we uh, cut down our hours at our jobs to about half. We um, we made bu- you know we finished making some more demos for about three months. Then we cut our- we quit our jobs entirely and went to work on an album for four months. And then we went on tour for eighteen months. And so you've got about two years of of four guys living just think about feeding four people for for 2 years and and you don't know until the end of that whether or not you've got, you know, a huge song at radio or not.
1: But they're not doing that because they like you, they're doing that because they hope that at the end of this process if they give you this money, they keep you guys alive long enough and they give you enough money to record your record that you're going to become a monster and they're going to get paid back and they're going to, and they're going to get paid back on you and all the other 20 other bands that they're doing the same thing to.
2: Right, they need to get paid back 20-fold for it to for the machine to keep running. And this brings us to the second
1: to the To the end of your op ed which is this all worked when the model was you if you turn into Justin Timberlake or whatever um then then we all get paid back, and everybody gets paid back handsomely, but that is no longer the case because they can't you're they're not making the money they used to make because the internet has um either uh Made everything wonderful, or destroyed everybody. Well, it's model. just sort of
2: leap. It's sort of <laughs> leapfrogged their distribution yeah. system. Right. I mean, the, this this system uh, arose to connect the dots between people making music and people who wanted to listen to it. And at the time. They they could pay for that by being the people who pressed up records and put them in stores, moved them around the country, and and they sort of situated themselves in between and figured out where the money comes from, and and then it was distribution. Now distribution is free, so if people want this risk aggregation service, it's going to have to come from somewhere that still makes money. And uh, you know our deal with our record label was 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 uh, very pro record label at the time. They got a lot of money if they sold our CDs. No one saw it coming, or rather, they didn't see it coming, and some of us did that CDs were going to stop being the way people made their money anyway. So, you know, we, we do just fine, but, but our, our label just doesn't sell very many records, and so they don't do just fine.
1: All right, so Adam, uh, we're going to stop the interview there for a second and because and, there's this other part to the story which if you go to OKGO's website, OKGO.net, you will see there is a video of Damien Kulesh, the lead singer, with his two dogs, a big black one and a little brown one, and they're dressed in collared shirts and ties. And Damien is talking to a camera saying OKGO has left their label EMI and is forming its own record label, which they're calling Paracadute, I think, which is Italian for parachute.
2: Hi, I'm Damien from OKGO, and I'm here with our new business partners. We're starting a company called Paracadute, it's uh, it's it's kind of like a, uh, a record company, except it's for just, I guess, whatever we feel like making. And Dora, come on. Business meeting.
0: Later. Sit down. Um, All right, so, so obviously the Planet the Money question. What, how is the business model of this record company going to be different from the business model of the record companies he hates? The answer is that the terms will be a lot more favorable to his
2: band. Whatever money comes in... We get to use. You know, we can invest whatever money we make. Um, So our revenue stream is not limited to to just the sales of physical CDs. Um, What's nice is when we do sell CDs, we now actually will get that money. Um, It used to, you know, it used to be that the deal with the label is they cut they have to keep ninety five percent to pay back for all the other failures. Luckily, we don't have any failures. We've already gotten to the point where our band is is successful. So we don't we don't need to we don't need to aggregate our own risk anymore. We're doing just fine. So we bet on ourselves
1: and we tend to win and and it used to be in the old model also you still needed the label even if you made it big because the label was what helped you distribute yourself your, your your music
2: well that's yeah way back in the day I mean uh, by which I mean like eight years um, <laughs> before before the culture had at large picked up uh, on digital distribution I mean you know before everybody th- saw an mp3 is sort of equivalent to uh, a CD um, then you really did need a a brick and mortar sort of system. You needed, you know, things to get on a truck and things to get across the country and to get into the hands of people so they could put it in their CD player.
1: So so basically, what you're saying is we're we're um, we're starting a revolution in rock management, and that works for you now that you, the people know you. You have 50 million viewers on YouTube, but what about? the okay go that you know that's out there now that is you know still that's like touring in their van they have their friend selling merch and nobody knows who they are what what's the system that gets that that band noticed to be honest i
2: don't entirely know and that's sort of the real problem with the industry collapsing is that there's no there's no known way from point a to point c or d or f anymore um and you know it it i i don't know what you do if you're a brand new band the thing is the the good part of it all collapsing is there's also all sorts of barriers out of the way so the, there will there's all sorts of room for sort of people to try new ideas and try innovative things and if you know if people make cool stuff and people are, are are savvy in the way they deal with their cool stuff i have no doubts that that young bands will continue to rise to the top um and and you know but uh, to be very clear i'm no fan of of the major label system and and i'm and i'm i there's nobody more happy than i to to be going free at this point. I mean, we've got it's it's a great time to get off the Titanic. There's no doubt about that. But um you know, the it, just to be, you know, even handed, there there were some things that they did well. Hey Alex, you know
0: it's ironic that we are talking about music on today's podcast because this is actually the week that Planet Money itself entered the music business.
1: <laughs> it's true. We did enter the music
0: business. So uh, many of our listeners, have, I hope, have heard the Planet Money story on This American Life this weekend. If you haven't, please go out. Alex Bloomberg did an unbelievably great job, Planet Money greatest hit type job, uh, working
1: along with two reporters from the investigative reporting team at, at ProPublica. Um, You make me blush, Adam. So the story on This American Life was an investigation into the activities of this one hedge fund, which is named Magnetar, uh, which made hundreds of millions of dollars for itself while making the financial crisis worse for the rest of us. And again, if you
0: haven't heard it, go hear it. Go to This American Life's website, thislife.org. But the thing that brought us into the music business is that in it... There is a piece of music. This American Life commissioned a Broadway show tune to be written about this hedge fund,
1: about Magnetar. It, it was written by Robert Lopez, one of the guys behind the hit Broadway show Avenue Q, and it's a minute and a half long and it gives a pretty good synopsis of the story that appeared on This American Life. And so we'll just we'll just play it right now. Here here, here it goes.
0: Step 1. We write a check for 10 million dollars. Hand the check to a Wall Street bank and ask them to make us a CDO. Step 2. They create the CDO using risky stuff, very risky stuff, extremely risky stuff. Step three, other investors commit hundreds of millions of dollars to the CDO. Step four, we bet against the CDO using a credit default swap. Step five, the housing market crashes, the CDO's value drops to zero. Our bet pays off and we make hundreds of millions of dollars. And before you can say step six...
2: We're gonna bet against the
0: American dream. We're gonna be on the winning team. Purchase risky debt on a massive scale. Then place a bet that the debt will fail. Hundreds of millions for Magnetar. The economy collapsing like a dying star. No one will know till it's on NPR. And who cares? It's time to hit the town.
2: It's losing steam, and all we gotta do to make our dreams come true is get against the American dream.
0: So, so, Alex, you know, I've been in Haiti and kind of a little bit away from Planet Money Central while you were finalizing this story. And I sort of, you know, I, I kind of missed the plot here a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I left and you were working on this really in-depth investigative reporting into hedge funds. And I came back and I'm just hearing people talking about this musical and, and, and I did not understand how it happened. So I actually asked Jake Bernstein and, and Jesse Eisinger, those are the ProPublica reporters who worked on this story with you, who who really did the bulk of the deep investigative dive, and uh, and they explained to me how it came about from their perspective. We were all in a meeting together uh, over at uh, at uh, this American Life headquarters, uh, and uh, we uh, we were trying to explain the story to to Ira and and, and the other folks over there, and he was saying, uh, you know, this is really
2: kind of like the producers. I mean, we – so then uh, there was a sort of passing comment at the end, as I recall, where he said, I think w- you guys should do a musical version of this, which I just thought was totally insane <laughs> since we had just spent, you know, an hour trying to explain what the hell a CDO was. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy thing was that that wasn't a joke.
1: No, it was not a joke. And – uh for proof, you can go and listen to the story uh, and hear the song at thisamericanlife.org. And you should definitely also read the ProPublica piece that they that they wrote on their website. It's about this hedge fund and Wall Street, uh, and it's a fascinating read. Go to ProPublica.org.
0: And if you want to see all of those awesome OK Go videos, including their latest video, which has this crazy Rube Goldberg-style thing, I can't describe it on the radio um, <laughs> it's uh, very hard to describe anyway you can see it at okgo.net
1: and you can see footage of that Broadway song being performed at our own website npr.org money please send us your thoughts comments questions to planetmoney at npr.org I'm Alex Bloomberg
0: I'm Adam Davidson and hey Alex let's have a rock star sign us off tonight
2: sounds good I'm Damien Kulesh They have to say thank you for listening thank you for listening